start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio, and with me is Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Woof! She says that a little differently every time. You can tune in each week. All variations. <laughs> and we also have with us as a guest, uh, a guest host, Vagabond Tony Carter. You may remember him from a couple of years back. He was doing our show, uh, our news show, Stark Reality, every week. And we're going to have Tony back doing that show again very soon. Say hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. You knew that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Hello, and, Krypton Radio. Good to our, be back. And our guest, our guest today is none other than Neil Halford. Uh, Neil is an American game designer, a book author, a screenwriter, an independent film director. Uh, he's best known for his work on the fantasy role-playing games Betrayal at Crondor, Dungeon Siege, and Champions of Norath. And he currently has a Kickstarter going for The Thief of Dreams. Welcome, Neil Halford, to the Event Horizon. And Thank you. And Thank may, you very much. And may you not get sucked in and flattened into an eternal spiral of fragmented, uh, compressed... Um, Plasma. Yeah. <laughs> or something along those lines. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me on, uh, guys and gal. Um, uh, I, it's a honor to be here. So we've been we've been sort of looking over your your list of credits. You've uh, you've got you've got credits going all the way back to 1990. Tunnels and trolls. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> the, the the computer game uh, version. Yeah, the computer I said that I was going to tell you something, Neil. Yes. That was going to make the world a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. In 1990, I was in high school, and I went to a friend's bookstore quite often. That friend was Jim Bear Peters. Okay. Who you may know from the Tunnels and Troll people. Um, Stephen McAllister, Ugly John Carter, I knew these people. I, I, my, my connection with him was mainly through, uh, through Liz Stanforth. I know I've met Liz, wonderful woman. Um, and so there's kind of a, 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 a weird, funny story about, about tunnels and trolls. Oh, uh, tell it. And uh, so, so, uh, tunnels and trolls, of course, uh, was a game based on, um, uh, the, the pen and paper game that obviously the, fo- the folks from Flying Buffalo had made. Um, and so, but the funny thing about it was, is even though I was a role player uh, as a kid back in Oklahoma, we never we weren't really that familiar with it. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, obviously, and RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu, which was actually my favorite system. Hey, Chaosium, uh, or no? Yeah, Chaosium. Yeah, I love Chaosium. Those. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but so whenever I I uh, got to New World, they said, well, we. Uh, they had bought the license to do this, but the first version of it was being developed in Japan by a company called Starcraft. No relation at all. I, to think, I think I told uh, Gene this story. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> um, and so, so this thing was made uh, made in Japan first, and then uh, whenever we were, uh, whenever I got there, 
uh, I was told, well, we have a version of, of the game, and we have the text that was in the game that's been translated from Japanese into English. Uh, For but, our listeners, this is called localization. So whenever yes. you see that in the game credits, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about translating the text or the dialogue in the game and all of the labels into whatever language uh, is relevant for wherever that game is being distributed. Does that include making it actually make sense in the new language? Or? Well, that's actually <laughs> that's, part that's of the an problem. issue. That's, that's an that's... issue with the Japanese and really any translation. All your base or belong to us is a classic example of Do that not... gone wrong. Yep. But go yeah. go ahead with the story. I know where this is going. So <laughs> so they handed me this this you know phone book. Uh, stack of of uh, of paper and said, okay, well, we have the English translation for it, but it's it's you know uh, it's kind of pigeon English. You know, you can kind of follow what they're saying, uh, but we needed this cleaned up and you know uh, turned into to nice, readable, clear text that's entertaining. And so I I proceed to go through and figure out what's going on. Of course, the hard part is this is back in the in the dark ages. We hadn't really figured out the whole concept of a design document. So I had no context for what these messages were, even if I turned them into proper English. Uh, and so they said, so the solution is, is we have a Japanese version of the game. <laughs> and so, you know, here's a computer. So it's a Japanese computer. They've got it. And so I'm having to kind of parse through uh, various different sequences and, and try to figure out what syncs up with whatever I've got on paper. So I'm playing the game in Japanese. <laughs> and I don't- yep. And I don't read or speak a word of it. <laughs> and so I'm just having to see what's going on uh, with my stats and see what's going on to try to figure out what's going on. Um, so eventually I work my way through this entire document uh, and I get it all translated and I'm very happy. And, and John Van Kanigan, who's the uh, head of the company, he's happy with it. And everybody says, yeah, you did a really great job. So... Um, before we ship the game out, we're kind of in testing and everything. One day I'm sitting in John's office and John had this gigantic wall full of, you know, all kinds of different games. Uh, and I look over and lo and behold, here is Tunnels and Trolls. And I go, oh, okay, well, let's, I, I, I have a look, look at this. And I, I, op- I flip it open the book and I start to realize is that the entire adventure that I have just retranslated into English was already available in English, written by Liz Danforth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the introductory solo play adventures. It's in the book. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just sitting there with a gun and go, you had all of the original text and you didn't tell me about it? Um, oh, man. <laughs> well, either they were testing you for maybe coming up with something better or they're idiots. <laughs> Well, I just felt mortified because Liz's stuff was perfectly fine. It would have, it would have been beautiful in the stuff. And so I felt kind of bad, and I wanted to kind of contact Liz, uh, Liz and say, look, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to rewrite your game. <laughs> you this shouldn't is, be the one to apologize. And that's not where it ends either. <laughs> this is There's more to this story. There is more to this, and I'm going to tell the rest of this. I don't know if you, you, you may have it? never caught this. You may have never have caught this one, Neil. I was talking to uh, to Jim Be- uh, Bear Peters and, and Stephen McAllister um. about this exact situation with, with with Kazan, and they had told me that when because they had to send it over to Japan to be coded, it had to first be translated into Japanese. Mm-hmm. For them to code it, so of course Liz and got together with somebody who spoke Japanese to translate it. And when it came back from the Japanese, of course they had somebody, one of their people, translate it back from the Japanese into English, mm-hmm. or English as we know it. <laughs> yes. And there's one particular sequence that that always caused Bear no end of laughter because uh, he knew that and. John Carver knew um, Rick Loomis. They all knew this would never sell this way because there's a sequence where this black man rides up on a horse. (laughs) And you can guess how that got translated. (laughs) And that is exactly how it got translated back. It's it's N-word rides up on a horse, right? Yes, that's exactly what what, what came back. I don't know if Neil ever saw that. 
Well, I don't know if you ever saw that in what they handed you. I think, I think we may have just lost our guest. I had so much stuff. I had so much stuff Tony, that, you that broke I came the back guest. and the, the phrase that actually stuck in my head for uh, for all these years was phrase was sudden boat turn turtle. <laughs> yes. And I'm going okay, and it took me several minutes to figure out what the heck they meant by that. Um, but over the years, that's that's been been my kind of uh, biggest memory of, of Tunnels and Trolls: a sudden boat turn turtle. What um, does it mean? Sounds like um, a scene from a Gamera movie. It means it capsizes. Uh, yeah, yeah, we well, yeah, get flipped over. So, yeah. so that's what it meant. Oh, but, <laughs> yeah, uh, but it took me a while to tra- uh, to figure that one out. Turn but. turtle. Turn that's over. probably an expression right. in Japanese. Yes, oh, it is it a Japanese is. expression. Yeah. Turn turtle it means to flip over. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that one took me a while to, to kind of figure out. But that was a really interesting experience. And that that was my crash course into getting into the games industry. It was the first thing I ever worked on, at least professionally. I, I said I had uh, several years of experience being, you know, a game master and playing Dun- uh, Dungeons and Dragons and Call of Cthulhu and that sort of thing. But But that was my introduction to the gaming world. And so I went from that to... Uh, working on Might and Magic 3 and Planet's Edge at the same time. And so it was, there, there was no t- a nice, easy introduction into, into the, this world. It was just kind of like throw you into the deep, deep end and see if you can swim. Yeah, uh, that's, that's kind of how it was for me. Uh, uh, you and I know a lot of the same people, Neil. I, mm-hmm. I was technical director at Dreamers Guild in 1995. And, mm-hmm. and a, lot of the, a lot of the people who were at Dreamers Guild are the same people who worked at New World and they went back and forth and yes yeah we uh, I, I knew to, um, to each other's barbecues and things like that oh yeah well the um, uh, Greg and Bonnie Hemsath uh, used to have a house out in Topanga Canyon and I I, I think for a while that uh, David was staying with them um, and uh, frequently or every, every uh, month Greg and Bonnie had uh, a potluck and. So it tended to be kind of a Dreamers Guild, New World a mixer, but there were a lot of other people there uh, that people would recognize, including Larry Niven. <laughs> uh, well, he lived uh, near there. What a, uh, what a small, small planet. I mean, we just, yes. I was, we were just, uh, we were just telling Neil, for the listeners, uh, we were just telling him that we got Larry Niven to play the part of the captain in our title sequence. Hmm. And so, so, so he's still uh, around. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's still around, and and uh, but it was it was kind of funny because uh, those potlucks were really uh, you you kind of felt like you were ground center for what was going on in the in the gaming world uh, when it, at, at Greg and Bonnie's potlucks every month. Uh, I love those guys. Yeah, that's kind of how the whole thing works too. Mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, um, we have Krypton Radio for similar reasons. It's it grew out of uh, grew out of friendships that we that we had already established. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk about the book. All right, we shall. So, yeah, let's uh, talk Thief of Time. The Thief of Time. Thief of Dreams. Thief, thief, of, thief, thief of Dreams. Of time. Thief, thief of, of Time. It was a uh, Terry Pratchett book, and quite You're a right. good one. You're but right. it's not, and I'll talk about it. But so take it as no. a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> thief of Dreams. I'm sorry. So Thief yes. of Dreams, uh-huh. and uh, one of the things I note about it is that uh, you don't start off with. Um, uh, I mean, you describe a situation and a world, but you don't describe a central character, and I was very curious about that. Uh, well, I, I did describe a little bit about the two main characters, yeah. but like I say, it's, it's, a, it's, a t- it's a tiny kind of nibble about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, with, with Thief of Dreams, I've got a, a pair of, of brothers uh, named Ar- uh, Ariel, or, or sorry, Ariel, Eris and Turiel. Um, and um, uh, one of the main characters, uh, Eris, is, uh, is actually kind of a spiritual successor to a character from an A old game of mine called Betrayal at Crondor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I kind of tr- traced that uh, that background a little bit for people who might have watched my uh, my update video from a few days ago. Uh, uh-huh. uh, Which I, didn't um, see. I haven't seen that yet. 
so uh, check that out because I kind of uh, draw sort of the line between how we got from from there to here. But mm-hmm. uh, just for for everyone else who hasn't seen that is uh, uh, several years ago, twenty years ago actually, to be to be precise. Um, we released a game called Betrayal at Crondor, which was based on the works of Raymond D. Feist. Um, Betrayal at Crondor did very very well, um, but we uh, and we were in the process of creating a, another sequel called Thief of Dreams. Now, uh, it was a really great title. Uh, Raymond E. Feist read it over. He loved it. He said, Neil, if you guys don't do this as a game, I'm doing it as a book. (laughs) Um, And uh, so everybody was very excited about the title, but we had a lot of kind of internal conflicts going on at Dynamics at the time, which was the the company that was responsible for for making it. Oh, I always pronounce that Dynamics. No, no, that you're confusing this with the dog food. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Dog come running from the exciting taste for the great taste of Dynamics. Uh, it, you know, it, it comes from it comes from watching old cartoon shows. You know, it's yeah. Blue Falcon and Dynamics. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I know this show? is going to be a fun interview. So uh-huh. anyway, go on about. Um, so, so anyway, uh, so we had this, we had this, uh, we had this, this concept. Uh, everybody loved it, but uh, unfortunately, uh, at Dynamics, the biggest thing that they are having said, "Well, we ran over budget on the first one. We really need to pare back significantly on the sequel." Uh, and so they wanted us to make the new game for about a third of the budget and half the time. Um, yeah, and that because that always works. Because that always works, and I said, and the, and the best way to follow up a, a hit game is to to do something that's not as good for the second game. Yeah, hey, it works for Hollywood. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I mean, we we had kind of a lot of squabbles with, with management about it. Another thing they wanted to do was uh, take all of the uh, take the all of the dialogue and all because all, all the on screen text for it. And have every word of it recorded in a in a studio, and we're going. You understand that's completely insane, because we actually had as much on screen text as about as about a four hundred page novel. Uh, and I uh, said, there's no, there's just no way we could get into an into a recording studio and do all, all that stuff. I said that would be the budget of the game right there. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, there were, there was a lot of kind of squabbling with it. Unfortunately, it, it ended up with the, uh, the, that game getting canceled, uh, which was rather unfortunate. Well, I but, don't know. I, I think it was probably a merciful thing that it did get canceled because, uh, given the production constraints that, uh, Dynamics had applied to it, it would have been a horrible, horrible ac- uh, accident. Oh, well, it could have- it would have been a terrible way to repay the fans. I, I agree. I, 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 I think it's it's probably better that it came out the way it did because it can turn into this book. Yes. And and, yeah. and the game would have been horrific yes. with those restrictions. Yes. And so so what I'm doing with, with the book that I have now is that one of the main char- The original idea was the main character of this set of games was going to be this character, Owen Bellafort. And, of course, whenever you're in Ray's universe, there's only one big bad magician. That's Pug. You know, uh, and so I couldn't really chart a story of another magician arising to power and being a big muckety-muck because, I mean, Ray had already done that story. I mean, that's, that's really what his series is about. It's, it's really uh, Pug is your, your main character. Um, and so I had to kind of figure out a different way to progress with this particular character. Is Pug is sort of his, make his sure hero. that there were no uh, no octopi in the story. Let yes, <laughs> dare to dare to keep squids off Pug. Uh. <laughs> I just, I, my executive producer just gave me a thwap with the uh, salmon of contrition here. You just date, you just dated every one of us in this conversation. That, because we all that got would, that joke. That would make me Captain, Captain Jack Harkness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to talk, talk toward the microphone. I'm Don't sorry. move around. She's <laughs> got two microphones. We're good. She's, he's trying to dodge you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm oh, sorry. I, I derailed the whole thing. Bad host. Right. Bad host. No, it's all right. So, Meanwhile, so, back uh, at the book. What we had, what we had decided that, that we wanted to do with with Owen was is the we were going to say 
Owen is going to take the powers that he acquires from, from having studied with Pug, and he is going to apply them to becoming uh, working for the kingdom and ultimately becomes uh, basically sort of their spy master for the kingdom. So he basically he's a spy who uses magic. Um, and so that was the path that we were going to take Owen on. But of course, after, after the game got canceled uh, and then ultimately all rights reverted back to Feist, that was kind of it protecting that little bu- bubble and I couldn't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the thing about it is, is that Ray doesn't own the rights to a noble who has magical powers and becomes a spy master. <laughs> right. Um, and so that was sort of the, uh, the idea that I've had for, for several years kind of floating around, and, and I've thought about this novel for, for a while. Uh, and so that's sort of the origins of where the idea for The Thief of Dreams kind of came from, is that I'm going to kind of pick up and uh, pick up this, char- this story with that, that, char- that kind of character and take him on that same journey. And it's kind of where if you take espionage and you take magic and you mix them together, and that's sort of the idea behind this, this story. And... But um, so to kind of talk a bit more about the novel itself uh, is that um, this is a world uh, in which uh, magic is forbidden, it's, it's, or at least it's technically illegal from the standpoint of the throne. And so uh, magic is something that kind of happens on the fringes of society. You, uh, you, know, you can't be, just be a, the local hedge wizard who lives down the lane. Um, and so... But that said, is there are a series of different kingdoms that are, are all at, at sort of in a cold war with each other. They're not an open warfare, but, but it is very much sort of a Soviet-U.S. kind of, uh, kind of a situation. Um, and so you have people that are working basically as magical spies for various different kingdoms, but they're not really kind of com- officially under the thumb of the king because there's, there are... are uh, because of of people's fear of of magic, and like I said, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of backstory there in in, in regards to why magic becomes illegal, uh, and sort of how we get in, into this this world state. Um, and so, our main so we have a pair of brothers. There's Eris and Turiel, uh, and Eris is the is our character that's our follow up to to Owen, and he is the 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 kind of spunky third uh, you know third son of, of this baron uh, that nobody ever paid much attention to and of course being that he's a third son he really doesn't have any any terribly great prospects you know uh, he's really kind of got to go make a life for himself uh, because he's not going to inherit anything from from his father um, there is his his next older brother Turiel who he's basically kind of kept in in the wings he's the spare the spare uh, brother this, mm-hmm. yes, the spare so there's there's the eldest brother who is basically running the barony, and you know uh, uh, he's busy with with various different things after the father had passed away. So the second brother is is sort of the spare. He's he's kept around. So when anything happens to the old, first older older brother, he's ready to step in and take over everything. So um, so Eris is shipped off basically to a, 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 a this this kind of academy for uh, for nobles, uh, basically to keep them out of everybody's hair and. Uh, uh, so that if if anything ever needs to, needs to happen with them, uh, they have some of the education about how the kingdom works and all, all this other stuff. It's mainly an effort to, to get them out of the, out of the hair of of their uh, various parentages. Um, but whenever he goes off to join this academy, he runs into some people who discover the fact that he has some abilities abilities he's not supposed to have. Um, and he gets kind of pulled into this this underworld. Um, and whenever uh, at some point the academy is uh, sends back word to to the to the baron and lets him know, well, your brother's not not been uh, attending his studies. And so second brothers go sent to to go box his ears and and uh, explain what a, what a bad brother he is. And of course, he gets sucked into this whole situation as well. Uh, and and as the adventure that they're going going to take is. It's not just about sort of unraveling um, uh, the this kind of threat that that's arising against the kingdom, but it's also about sort of the situations between uh, an older and younger brother. And you have the older brother who thinks, "Well, I'm the one who knows what's going on, and I'm the responsible older one." And then you have the younger brother. Well, he's he's, he's you know he's just this kind of uh, goofball, and he's never going to amount to anything. And suddenly having this reversal whenever he shows up, and it's no, really, it's Eris who knows what's going on. And uh, older brother finally uh, suddenly finds himself out of his depth, and 
not, you know, he's he's been raised with the idea that, that you know, he has certain responsibilities uh, and he's going to be able to kind of guide what's going on. And he finds himself suddenly very much out of his depth. That sounds like a great setup. It does, actually. Do you have brothers? Yeah, it's 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 definitely I guess so. It, like I say, it's very as much a story about brothers as it is a story about about this magical stuff that's going on. Um, so, are you the younger brother or the older brother in your I, family? I am the younger brother. Right, I caught that one. That's one thing about uh, one thing about writing a novel, though, is that it's a very very different experience from writing a game. And yes. for our listeners, most of the time. Uh, there are a lot of writers out there, and yes. if, by the way, if you do have a book, we encourage you to contact us at Krypton Radio at kryptonradio dot com, and we'll put you on the air. Well, we'll but, read it, yeah, and then we'll, read we'll it discuss first, it. And then we'll, yeah, we'll talk about <laughs> it. But, yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, not not the, all books not will all get on the air. No. But the uh, <laughs> what I wanted to what I wanted to bring up is the fact that uh, writing a novel is a very very linear experience. Yes. Uh, both for the writer and for the reader. Mm, and yes. uh, when you do this for a game, it's completely the opposite way around because uh, the reader or the, the player in this case is almost as much an active participant in choosing the, the path of the plot as the writer is. And yes. you have to accommodate multiple paths and multiple incidents, uh, multiple instances and and uh, allow the story to unfold in several different ways, and you may have several different endings. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, it's uh, well. The kind of the irony for me is the fact that whenever I was in in uh, college, I took I can't even begin to, to to number the number of hours I took on, on either short story and novel writing. And during that process, I actually banged out uh, a really horrible novel, which no one will ever read. <laughs> uh, um, uh, called This Realm Alone. Uh, and um, um, so it was actually kind of interesting that whenever I got hired on that I had to re- rewire my brain in order to do interactive st- style storytelling. Um, and so I've spent 20 years basically learning to do that only to unplug all that stuff and try to go back to what I learned in college. Um, and so... Uh, but, but yeah, you're right. It's, it also, it's, it's just a very strange and disorienting thing because, as I've kind of stated to people before, is we all know that really that any given story that you real uh, you you read or you play through, really, there's only one true ending to any story, and we all know that. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, based on on the starting conditions of of whatever the story you're going to be and who those characters are, uh, you know. Any any ending to Star Wars that didn't end with the Death Star blowing up is a mistake. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, and so uh, so you know uh, we go off on Lord of the Rings and Frodo doesn't make it to Mordor, but instead you know marries the uh, marries Gladriel and goes off to the <laughs> to the the Western lands. Uh, that that's wrong too. <laughs> Um, on and, many levels, uh, yeah, on on many many levels. Uh, I mean, good for Frodo, but not so good for us. Yeah. Um, but um, I still don't know so, why they didn't just fly the ring over the <laughs> volcano on those eagles and drop it in. <laughs> Take that up with Tolkien. You've seen that on, on that's how it should have ended, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did actually. <laughs> I did. Um, the eagles didn't want to be a part of any of this stuff. No, they got no. dragged well, in. No. And they had that nasty breakup in the 70s. The eyes, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, boy. I think it would be pretty awesome if they'd gone into Mordor on the back of Joe Walsh. Oh, dear. Um, Oh, boy. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, So... but anyway, uh, but uh, so so like I'm saying is, is I'm not saying that, uh, and of course, obviously, with an interactive story, you're handing over the reins to who your characters are to the players, and you're you're letting them decide what's the right way and, and what's the wrong way, and and so forth, and so and that's fine. That's that's exactly what the medium is about. It's not about you know an off the rail gentle guidance, you know, what? or occasionally giving them gentle guidance. 
well, yeah, in, I, I in said, the form of a dialogue tree that actually makes some kind of sense. Or killing them repeatedly until they do what you want them to do. Or well, as is popular in recent games, simply complaining that you took an arrow to the knee. Yes. And that ends that particular... And then that's why I gave up my, my life as, as being a millionaire playboy. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, um, but anyway, it, so uh, I, I kind of tell people, said the, I've seen really good writing in games and I've seen bad writing in games. And, and uh, whenever you see story, uh, story trees where, okay, there's really only one valid uh, response and the rest of them are all just basically jokes... It's funny, uh, and, and sometimes I, I enjoy that. But you kind of go, why did you waste my time? Because this is a choice that doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. And you do that more than once in a game, and you raise the ire of the player. Yeah, well, and of course, uh, of course, it, some of those dialogue trees become the equivalent of, okay, you died in the middle of the level, go back to the beginning. And there was a whole thing of, well... The game is you're 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 going to be playing the game, and I have my save game. Okay, I played it through. Oh, that wasn't the response I want. Okay, stop, quit, go back, re- reload the the level again, and, and give it the answer that I want it to have, uh, and just min maxing the heck out of the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can do that, uh, but I, I just kind of feel like the the writer gets a little bit jet or not the writer, but the players get gypped whenever the, the writer gets lazy. And so if you're going to give them options, giving them give them meaningful options, and give them um, give them a different story path that makes sense. Um, but uh, the, the reality is is there's no such thing really uh, as complete freedom in games. No matter how much, uh, no matter how much the, the game, design, uh, game designers and the PR people will tell you, it's a complete and utter, utter crock. There are still a finite number of endings <laughs> uh, to what's well, going on. And there are finite, I mean, the... The writer's job is to create the illusion that the world is much larger than it really is. Yes. And this is going to be true of a novel as well as a game. Very true. Uh, but, um, I mean, for example, uh, on Fairy Tale Adventure 2, I was the level designer. I was the chief level designer. I was helping, uh, I was actually teaching all the rest of the level designers how to write stories. Mm-hmm. Because we had to come up with little mini quests and things like that. And uh, it fell to me to write all of the magical scrolls in the game. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the classic magical scrolls that you encounter in uh, mythical uh, settings like this is a scroll of invisibility. Oh, mm-hmm. Lord. Yeah, which <laughs> the game engine did not support this. <laughs> so, uh, so what I scripted was... You you had you got this invisibility scroll, and well, when you got scrolls in the game, you read them and they had their effect and they disappeared. Right. Well, in this case, the scroll, uh, the result of reading the scroll of invisibility was that the scroll of invisibility became invisible, and that was that. <laughs> yes. This is this is like Daffy Duck's uh, disintegrating pistol, isn't it? That's yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but that's you know, you know this is this is how I solve this is how I sometimes solve the problem of of creating a wor- the world slightly uh, to creating the impression that the world was bigger than it really was is by putting up these little facades here and there. Yes, yes. Well, you know that's and that was that was kind of funny because uh, um, it's I I I was whenever I, I uh, write descriptions for, for items and stuff, because a lot of people say, this is a sword and it does X amount of damage, and I go, well, it's completely uninteresting, it doesn't make, make me care anything about it. I said, the items that, that are present in the world, particularly the things you want to be the really kind of big glory items, you, you, they need to have a backstory to them, because uh, I said, you know, there's, there's a difference of, say I walk into a store, and it's a, a pawn shop or something, and I see some, you know, battered up old typewriter that's sitting up there on the shelf, and I said, okay, well, it's kind of a nice, nice typewriter. Well, how much do you want for it? And the guy says, well, I want $200 for it. And you're looking at it and you go, well, why do I want to pay $200 for this beaten up? I mean, I could go buy a brand new computer that, that does 10 million things that this thing can't do. Why do I want to pay $200 for it? He says, because this is the, the typewriter that Stephen King wrote the stand on. Good answer. Uh-huh. What? Good yeah. answer. Good answer. Yeah. And... Um, and so, you know, it's just one of those cases of, of because things have stories related to them, because they have a history, suddenly something that has no 
value maybe in and of itself suddenly has great value because you have associations with it. Uh-huh. Um, and so, um, uh, like you say, it's it's a, a, a way of kind of pulling back that curtain and said, wow, I suddenly I have this history of, okay, this sword was the one that, that was pulled from the dead bo- body of the... Uh, of you know the great elven warrior whatever now suddenly I want that sword um, and I've also implied this much big as you say a much larger world that's out there uh, just because this this now has a kind of a small story to it and it it gives me a peek at a world that maybe I'm not telling that story in the forefront but it it, it suggested at a deeper richer past um, and uh, I think that's important as a buy-in and I think that that that's also a big part of, of what makes novels work too is that um, and I think that's the that's the intriguing thing about writing science fiction or fantasy stories is that if I were to write a novel today about um, you know if I was writing National Treasure as a novel for instance uh-huh. I don't have to explain to anybody what the Declaration of Independence is I don't have well unfortunately there's probably a small handful of people I would these but days <laughs> with international distribution, maybe it would. But by and large, I don't have to explain what that means. I don't have to explain sort of what, what a lot of the trappings of that thing are because people are already familiar with it. But the hard part with a fantasy novel or, or science fiction writer is you have to do a, a ton of work in a, in a, uh, that no one actually ever reads. You know, we have to create these world Bibles that explain this is the back history of the world, this is where it came from, this is all all the stuff that makes the fabric of the universe work, uh, so that whenever your characters are going to go do the things they're going to do, they're doing so out of motivations based on how, how um, that reality works. And the hard part, of course, is obviously giving that information to the players and, and or players, <laughs> to the readers, in such a way that you know they they get kind of a hint of that richness and the deepness that's there, but at the same time you don't have an expository scene that goes on for twenty pages. Uh, as you know, Doctor So and So, let's talk about the way the transporter works. Um, when, well, it's it's, it's, another, it's another way to think about it is is um, doing things visually and yes. building a set. Yes. And you uh, you usually want to build a set that's a little bit bigger than you expect to have to shoot on. Exactly. Because, God forbid, that camera should go an extra three degrees to the left, mm-hmm. and there's no set there. And that's the hard part about writing games. Uh, uh, because in if, if you have a can if you are in an, if you're a novelist or you are a screenwriter, well, it only goes where you basically, you know, you say, I'm going to set where the camera is going to be and it isn't going to move. I, I can I can concentrate on only what's in front of me, <laughs> in front of that camera, and I don't have to really have to worry about it as much. But in a game, they said, well, you know, I'm going to walk all around the building. I'm going to go over here in this corner that doesn't seem to have much in it because I want to see if anything's going on over there. Um, and that actually became a huge kind of conflict between myself and uh, and John. Cutter. Actually, I don't want to say conflict. He said we, we debated a great deal about it. John and I actually had a really fantastic working relationship. I've of. Other designers I've ever worked with, John and I had probably the best rapport I've had in, in my entire 23 years in business. Um, but whenever we were doing Crondor, he had this philosophy, oh, well, your job is to go down to Crondor, so we just follow this road, and we have a couple of adventures along the way, and you get down to Crondor, and stuff happens down there. And I said, I said we could do that. I mean, that's what almost every other game out there that, that was out available at the time, that's what they did. They told you to go somewhere, and you went and you did what they, they, they told you to. And I said, I'm a contrary bastard. This this basically puts the player on a rail. Yes, it puts player, them on a rail. And, players and, don't like this. Yeah, and, and and back in the day, that was most games. There was a lot of games of uh, in the early 90s that did exactly that. You just yeah. uh, were but stuck. You were stuck. They put you on, on a path, and you did exactly what the game told you to do, and you didn't really have much in the way of choice. Well, I, have and, some, I have some insight on that, and I'll offer that in a moment. If we wanted to do that, we'd go to Disneyland. Mm-hmm, right, uh, but uh, but my oh, standpoint look, it's was a small that, world on Xbox. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we kind of decided that I said I want to build say that there are a number of other places in, in the game that if a player decides that they want to not do exactly what we have suggested they should do, they can go explore this this other these other parts of the world and there's stuff going on there. Um, and of course, this was me putting a gun to my own head. <laughs> Because that meant I had to populate the entire world through nine chapters of development. Yep. Uh, uh, 
<laughs> and so, uh, but that that was my own choice and my own doing. And ultimately, that ended up being one of the best choices we made in Crondor. Is people could explore around and they could see that as the chapters changed and events changed in the different towns, uh, and there was story development going on, not just on the main uh, the the main storyline, but we had a, a number of subplots that were going on as well. Um, and so if they, they went out and they really explored, uh, they got their money's worth. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what we did with uh, Fairy Tale Adventure as well. We had, uh, we had uh, story generators as well, uh, where mm. it would take little pieces of the main story and mix them into something that came out of a formula, mm. you know, so that it, it gave the player the impression that they were playing a piece of the main story. Mm-hmm. And it would give them something to do, and, and right. uh, it was interesting to do, and involved some trekking and fighting, and and uh, you know it's a little bit of grinding, I, I suppose, uh, mm-hmm. but the uh, it worked, and we got something like um, two hundred hours of gameplay packed into that thing. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. lot, which is a lot for for mm-hmm. a computer game. Oh yeah, well, and uh, particularly these days. I mean, the, the, these days. Uh, unless you're playing it in some kind of multiplayer mode, you know, a lot of these games, you know, six, nine hours. <laughs> now, you know, my son just bought um, uh, Bioshock Infinite. Yeah, Bioshock Infinite. And he, ex- oops, there's my keyboard. Did he finish it in one day? He finished it in three. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know, yeah. Yeah. I heard the same thing from another friend of mine. She got Bioshock Infinite. It was like, $60. Where's the infinite? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the infinite is. It's like, I, you know, back in the day, if, if, uh, all of us would have been ashamed if anybody finished the game before about a month was over. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so that's something that I find it's kind of funny is that we talk about all the ways that the ways that games have advanced technically, but in terms of actually delivering, you know, um, that kind of uh, play value, yeah, not so much. Um, well, around 1994 was when the motion picture industry discovered that yeah. The production pipeline for games was very similar to the production pipeline for motion pictures. Mm-hmm. And they thought that they could just go in and uh, have a game company license license their material and then mm-hmm. produce a game uh, that essentially walked the player through the same steps that the motion picture took. Yeah, And yeah. It, it put players on a rail, and the players hated it. And... Well- uh, that sort I, of I, that was that was it took three years for them to figure out that they this was a losing proposition, and this had two effects. First of all, uh, it made people very wary of uh, of adventure games mm-hmm. because they didn't they didn't want to be subjected to that, mm-hmm. and it also raised the bar the production uh, the production quality bar. Uh, because the movie, the motion picture studios had piles and piles of cash to throw at this, so the quality bar was was raised very very high, and the public became accustomed to seeing these very very high uh, uh, quality standards. Yes. And then the motion picture industry left, leaving <laughs> the game industry effectively holding the bag. And having to produce games of the same quality bar that they'd been making before, but without the money. Right, right. Well, the um, I, I think that one of those things that you kind of touched on is kind of what we got into with the sequel to Crondor, uh, is that the expectation was, because the, the big exciting thing that everybody was talking about at the time was audio. You know, wow, let's have, because we can do digitized audio and it'll be fantastic and it raises our production value and, and all this good stuff. And um, the, pro- the thing about it is, is that any time you decide you want to film something or you want to you want to record the audio, you've are already automatically limited what the what the game is going to be possible in the context of the game because that every every time you you have one of those changes in what's going on, um, uh, you're, that's that's dollars out of the budget. Uh, text is free, at least in terms of, of, of what it costs. You know, it doesn't cost them anything. Uh, or it doesn't it doesn't cost a, a game studio anything to uh, beyond whatever you're paying the writer <laughs> uh, to to create more text. Uh, and also at the last minute, five minutes before before you send it out to, to Goldmaster, you can add a line of dialogue uh, with text, and that's not a big big deal. 
If, however, I've recorded every line of dialogue, okay, that's scheduling time in a studio, paying the engineer, all that other stuff. And so you aren't really, it's harder to respond to changes of things that come up because in testing we realize the storyline doesn't work. Or we realize, you know, X, Y, or Z didn't happen. And so you're kind of tied very early on to, okay, this is what we've decided to do, and then we've just got to hope to God it works. Um, and so, um, so I mean, that's, that, that was another kind of, that's the penalty for multimedia, is that it's a little, it's a little harder to be responsive to things that you discover during testing. You know, and it's funny because modern day games have that exact same problem. I'll give you an example. When Portal 2 came out, there are many, many sequences recorded sequences that are just not used Mm -hmm. they got cut out last minute but they are there in the data files Mm -hmm. and of course fans have have taken those and reassembled them to determine this whole side story arc Mm -hmm. that valve never went with Mm -hmm. but it's it's that exact same thing as they've already spent the money to record the the these uh lines and everything and you know um the reality too is that sometimes i mean People have this notion that I sit down and design this game and it's perfect, and it, it comes out just the way that I, I put it down in a design document. Yes. Uh, I, I wish that was true. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I, I don't know how many times where you're in production on a game and say, you know, we're running behind uh, these, this level. We don't actually have, have money to build this particular level. This spell didn't get implemented, which kind of blows this whole storyline. Uh, and suddenly you're faced with a situation where you go, well, we need to get rid of rid of levels number three and seventeen. And I said, level, you know, it says those are major turning points in the story. And if I get rid of it, I suddenly have to explain how this person got halfway across the world and and all the other stuff. And so, uh, working in the computer gaming industry is a tap dancing act um, uh, because you are hampered by the fact that there are other people out there that are are responsible for creating other parts of the world. And sometimes they can't do what you want them to do, and so suddenly you're always kind of you know standing a little bit on quicksand. Often through no fault of their own. Yeah, through no fault of their own. Sometimes yeah, it's just not possible, or they're they're waiting on somebody else who hasn't given them uh, something they needed, or someone else is just running behind. And ultimately, there's that big ugly production launch date, mm-hmm. you know, that which does that, not move. The dreaded deadline um, doom we used to call it. And of course, a lot of people will talk about, oh, well, just ship the game whenever it's ready. And I said, that's and uh, obviously that's that's the best possible answer. Uh, but the reality is, is that every time the, the longer you're in production, that means another month paying everybody that's on staff. <laughs> that's another, uh, and also too is, in order to sell games today, you've got to buy ad time, and ad time is bought in advance. Uh, so, uh, of course, in the old days, it was all about game covers for yeah. magazines. Now, obviously, as time is going by, that's going to be less less of an issue because all of the print publications are dying off. You know, even, uh, even Game Developer Magazine is going away. Yes, I was going to mention that as the fact that Game Developer Magazine is ceasing publication as a paper edition. They're going to become an add-on to Gamma Sutra. Yeah, they were in they were in print for 19 years, and I got a lot of great stuff from them. And I'm sorry to see them go. Yeah, me too. Uh, they were a great publication, and and um, and so, uh, but there's there's still this menta- mentality is that that you've got to well, it's not really mentality; it's just the practical way it works. Is that advertising and marketing have to do their jobs, and in order to do that, uh, that date shipping date cannot move. Um, and so, you have all these restrictions and restraints about working on games. The same thing's true with film. Um, and so all of those are kind of realities that, that, that go on with game production. Well, and the, not- the, the difference between games and film, though, which the film industry found out the hard way, mm-hmm. was that the science of making motion pictures, the art and science of making motion pictures, has been largely unchanged since, uh, since the turn of the previous century. Yes. And that's not true. That certainly wasn't true it's not true in games now, and it was especially not true in the mid-90s yeah. when what made a game sell was some new feature, some new technolo- uh, technology trick that the developers had worked out. And there was mm-hmm. no way to predict or schedule how long that was going to take. 
right? And uh, also, too, is that there is the issue of what technically you're going to do within the context of the game. So I have a new spell, I have a new trick that we're going to do, some kind of gameplay thing that no one's ever done before. So that's an internal issue. But there's also the issue of what platform do I ship this on? Mm-hmm. Uh, because back in the day, it says, hey, well, there are five or six major OSs out there. Uh, and at the time, you couldn't just in- inter- you know, interchangeably take... Here is my here is my PC code, and we'll just flip this over to being you know Mac code. Well, because there were no authoring systems then. Yes, you did there were no authoring systems every time, and so you had to make a choice of where am I going to spend my where am I going to spend my development dollars? And the same thing was true with consoles when the console war started. Um, and so, uh, so every time you you make a game. Uh, you're building not only the world from scratch, but but you're building the technology makes it draw, uh, make, makes it work from scratch. Um, and you know, generally speaking, no one was licensing engines. I built my game engine every time I I created a, a new game. Um, and so, with the with only a handful of exceptions, most of the engine technology was was being uh, written from scratch. Um, so every game was a gamble. Um, <laughs> Even if it was a sequel to a well-known, uh, well-known uh, a franchise, you're still, for the most part, you're starting over every time. And so, um, uh, I think that that made games, particularly back in the early days, uh, a, a lot riskier to, to to happen. And also, too, if you got lucky enough to be a a hit, uh, it was you were even luckier than most people. I think most people, most people uh, recognize because I just happened to hit on just the right technology at the right time. So, um, anyway, long tie tribe. <laughs> is that a train? Yes, that is. I'm sorry. That's it's a bird. I'm, it's I'm, a plane. I'm outraged. I think my wife it's is a train. Cleaner in some other room. It's it's, um, it's Superman. It's more powerful than a locomotive. This is <laughs> we're recording this. This will air on. Uh, let me see when will this air. This will air on uh, April twenty seventh. Okay. How much time is there to the end of your Kickstarter campaign? Um, we end on May 11th or 12th. So that puts that puts this show right about in the middle of your campaign. Yes. Where, it, where it's needed the most. Yes. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, the... The uh, the hard part with these these campaigns, and it's one of the things that that I've been through a couple of these with other friends of mine. Uh, uh, in the in the past six months, I've I've actually had kind of a little bit of a roller coaster because I had two other people that were friends of mine that were running campaigns, and they asked me if I would be willing to uh, to work on you know these game projects if and when they were finished. And I said, of course, and I and I would help them with their campaigns as well. Uh-huh. And so this is actually my third campaign in six months. <laughs> and how did the it, others do? Uh, unfortunately, neither of them happened. Um, uh, the first, the first, yeah, the first one. The first one uh, was Thorvala from my friend Guido Hinkle, who's best known for the Realms of Arcania uh, games. Um, and he also was a producer on Planescape Torment. Um, so unfortunately, Thorvala uh, uh, felt we we didn't get much traction with with that one at all. And then more recently uh, was my friend Chris Taylor, who had Gas Power Games, and they were running a uh, campaign for a game called Wildman. And we got about halfway to the target. Um, of course, the hard part with with games is that it's a lot of people suffer extreme sticker shock, shock whenever they go in and they see that you're, you're reaching up for a million dollars. Yeah, I, I'm very aware of that. Yeah. And, and the thing about it is, is that for fans, they go, oh, my God, that's an unbelievable amount of money. And, of course, what they have no idea of is the fact that, oh, my God, that's a ridiculously low amount of money to make a game. <laughs> um, and so, you know, realistically, you know, uh, that's really kind of your starting funds. Yeah, a million dollars was low in the mid-90s. Yeah, it was low in the mid-90s. And so what you're really asking for is give us enough money that we can build a really strong prototype and then we can go to a publisher uh, and they, they can see, well, we've already footed a third of the bill, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. And essentially uh, get the equivalent of a negative pickup deal. Yes, Exactly. And so you go in and say, I already have a significant portion of this built. 
can you know let's go to the next step and uh, we'll finish this out. But and the thing about it is it's it's a great deal for a publisher because they can go in and, and they don't have to read a design document and try to imagine what you're talking about. They can see a very you know uh, a very well featured. Uh, prototype for all intended purposes. And they don't have to guess at whether or not the game's going to be popular because you've already got X number of people and all this activity and all exactly. the uh, social media buzzing about what you've done so far as evidence that the game has a, a future. Yeah, well, that's and, the real advantage of crowdsourcing and crowdfunding yes, and, like that. And, and that's, that's the one thing that a lot of people who are donors don't really kind of understand is that you're basically looking for, do I have a core fan base? Um, and so it's it's about more than you know. This is not a campaign about for for Thief of Dreams. This is not a campaign about buying a book. If the only thing you're interested in is buying the book itself, then wait until I get done with it, <laughs> and uh, it's going to be a lot cheaper than you go on and, and, and pledge. What you're pledging to do is basically uh, because I'm self-publishing this this particular title. Um, uh, because if I if I crowdfund this, I can't go to a ma- major publisher because major a publisher is not going to want to get their hands messed with you know dirty with all the stuff. They don't know anything about you, and and the whole idea for a, a traditional publishers they they hate this kind of stuff anyway. Um, and so they they frown on people who self publish things because it attacks their business model for one. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, so, so anyway, but it's a way of kind of establishing here as a core. I, I know that people are interested in this idea, and so they either I find enough people that are interested, say, okay, that makes makes it kind of worth my time to to spend a year writing a book. Uh, and I already know that, that there are people that are going to buy it. I've already got a, a core fan base that have kind of helped uh, helped me establish whether the interest was there. Um, and so, um, uh, you know. The, I know the traditional model is I sit down for a year and I write a novel. And the reality is is that I can sit down uh, uh, sit down for a year and write a novel and then maybe not have it sell. And it's it's not a matter of a question of my own you know belief in my own skills or or the idea. I, I have great confidence in both of those things. But it's just a reality is is that there are no guarantees. <laughs> um, and that publishers can only buy a certain number of books. And frankly, over the past ten years. Uh, Publishers are taking fewer and fewer risks on unknown authors, uh, and it's just because the their economics have changed drastically, particularly over the last five. Between Amazon closing all of these big box stores, uh, it's it's a very difficult and competitive market for them, and so uh, it's what they're going to buy and not going to buy. There, it's. It's, it's really kind of difficult for them. And so for me, this is the thing that makes most sense because if I'm going to spend a year writing it, well, I want to, to at least know that I have an audience for, uh, for it before I write it. Um, and a, a, Kickstarter, a, a Kickstarter is a way of kind of proving that because people are kind of proving with their dollars, yes, I'm interested in this concept. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in this, and also I'm going to tell my friends about this concept. Um, so, so there's that that aspect to it be below just the, the pure fiscal. I got to pay bills while I'm writing it. <laughs> um, and so, I, I had someone make a comment that was saying, "Oh, well, it doesn't cost anything to write uh, to write anything." I said, "Okay." Oh let's... yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. You still you still have to eat. You still have to keep the lights on while you're doing it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my computer doesn't run so well if I don't have electricity coming into my house. But actually, let's let's, let's say in the alleyway that I'm living in because I don't have money to pay the mortgage. Uh, <laughs> yes. Right. So, exactly. uh, and that, that was sort of, sort of the other downside about these other two uh, Kickstarters going down is those were both kind of job opportunities for me, which would have taken care of me for several months. And when those went down, uh, my two best prospects for this year sort of disappeared. Uh, and so that's some, some uh, that's something else is that the gaming industry has been shedding jobs like nobody's business over the past year. Um, well, and so is the the motion picture industry has been oh yeah just a a, a rolling train wreck. Yes, and again, it's it's not that these are bad game companies. It's not that these are bad you know uh, film companies. It's just for for years they said that the uh, entertainment industry is bulletproof when it comes to economic downturns and generally speaking that's been true but that's not been true during this one uh... because ultimately if if the downturn is big enough and it's hard enough then it hits everybody well, what uh, happens is that the the uh, holders of the intellectual property uh... get out of the production business yes and they want to try to outsource everything the trouble yes. is that 
uh, all of the little companies that have been doing the work are also going out of business because yes. they, you know, they're not getting the the funds from from the big intellectual property holders, and there's nobody to actually make the stuff. Yes, sure they are. They're in India, Singapore. Well, you know, and then and then when you use those routes, not that they're not that they're uh, doing bad work, but they don't often get it. It's uh, I mean they don't often understand what it is they're trying to make, and they can't reach their audience. And um, I mean sometimes you have a very very good uh, remote studio, but most of the time you don't. It's like mm. trying to make a Bollywood picture here, you know. <laughs> People who you watch the regular product are going to just scratch their heads and go, what are they trying to do? <laughs> right. Well, and exactly. also, too, it's just the reality of dealing with, with anybody. And this doesn't even have to be a different country. But the reality of dealing with anybody that's out of house and that's outsourced, you're always going to have problems because there's miscommunications. Uh, it, it's much easier. I mean, from working in, in game development companies, it's, it's very difficult to be involved in the project, particularly if you are in a leadership position on something, if you, you say, you know what, I, we need to address problem X, Y, or Z, and I can't just walk next door and talk to the person in the next office or, or go to their cubicle and have a conversation and deal with it in a couple minutes. It's right. like, okay. I have to wait 12 hours and do a video conference, or I have right. to do it in email, and they may or may not understand what I mean because I can't show them. Right. And so it's it's uh, it's it's very difficult not to uh, to develop whenever you don't have pretty immediate access to the people uh, that you uh, that are involved. And so um, so that's that's a downside. And like I say, it's not not just sort of an out of country thing. It's also just a reality of of, of any kind of outsourcing. But um, right now, everybody's looking for ways to cut cost. Um, and so for for a lot of people, it's much easier and much cheaper to do it all in house. You know, that's assuming you can keep money to keep your own house running. Um, so, uh, anyway, so so the the long and short of that being is the fact that I, I'm kind of beating my, my own path to say that that you know this is I'm, I'm going to be running this this whole gear myself. Uh, if it if it fails or or it succeeds, it's all on me. Um, and so um, anyway, so it's it's kind of nerve wracking because you. Uh, the first the first day of these campaigns, particularly if you've done your job right, at least you get a really nice, healthy spike at the beginning of it, which we did for mm-hmm. which for, for publication title, you know, for for uh, for writing fiction on Kickstarter, we're doing pretty well for for a start. I'd say pretty well. You're doing it um, as far as I can tell. You're doing about uh, a, slightly under a thousand dollars in pledges a day, which is really superb. If well, you keep we were, that up, you'll yeah. make it. <laughs> We we haven't been doing doing uh, nearly that well over the past couple of days, uh, which is just a function of Kickstarters. And I know that you guys had your own Kickstarter we last, had our own, which did not work out very uh, well. But um, we learned a lot. Yeah, and, and so have I. That's that's the thing about having the advantage of having being involved in these other Kickstarters is that traditionally it seems like you get a really big spike for the first two or three days, which are your hardcore fans that are going to don- donate no matter what. Um, and they've, they, you know, if you've done some advanced work, they know they knew whenever you're going to launch, and so they're going to be the first ones in line, and they pay their money. And then every other campaign that I can I can tell there's there's it's kind of a bell curve because then it slopes off, and then you're fighting in the middle of the campaign, which is now where we're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're fighting for every dollar. Uh, the other matter is is I've had someone trolling us for a couple of days. Oh, uh, and Swell. so, uh, which is. Like I say, it's the individual involved uh, has a kind of. A, I went back and I, I kind of looked at their comment history, and this is sort of their mo. They basically pay their their uh, their you know token dollar, and they come in and they bash pro- projects basically to get their own kicks out of it. Um, and so, so we we've had some damage done to us, unfortunately, because of that. Um, but uh, it happens, and then we're we're not the only campaign that it's happened with, and. Uh, uh, that said, is that I, I think that that you know it it was not an ideal circumstance for us, but we've still got lots of very loyal fans, uh, and they're out there plugging for us. And so, I think that we still have an excellent chance. We've, we're only just a couple of days now into our second week, and so uh, and uh, with all that said, we're still tracking as the number one uh, fiction publishing title on QuickTrack. Yes, you are, and that's a very impressive thing to. Uh very impressive thing to be able to say. And unfortunately, with that, Neil, we are out of time. We are at the top of our hour. 
But ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio for April 27th, 2013. We have had as our guest Mr. Neil Halford, uh, the author of... uh, the the game writer for Betrayal at Crondor and many other games, who has a Kickstarter going for his new book that he hopes to write uh, called The Thief of Dreams. And, Neil, it's been a great pleasure. This has been a hoot. We've got to have you back. Uh, You call, and I will will absolutely be there. (laughs) Great. And thank you, Tony. It's been it's been great having you on board for for this show as well. And uh, I we've got to talk about some more about uh, Stark Reality. That's going to be <laughs> we're, we're going to have some things, fun. Things are starting to roll there. We're going to have some fun. Oh yes, we will. Okay. Well, who wants to <laughs> thank push you guys? Who wants to push the button this time? Let Let Tony push the button. Tony, do you want to push the button? Oh, do I get to push the button? You get yeah, to push it's, the it's button. The, it's it's big, it's red, it's shiny, and you can press it. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. He let me push the button. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Bye-bye. You have been listening to an episode of The Event Horizon, a Krypton Radio production. Our guest this week has been Neil Halford, author of Betrayal of Krondor and Dungeon Siege and a number of other computer games, and he has a Kickstarter campaign going on Kickstarter as we speak for The Thief of Dreams, his new science fiction novel. If you have a few extra dollars in your pocket that you're not sure what to do with, you might want to consider becoming a backer. Your hosts this week have been station owner and general manager Gene Turnbow, executive producer Susan Fox, and on-air personality Vagabond Carter. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. Do you have a new novel or a business that you want to advertise? Krypton Radio is one of the best places to do that. Radio remains your best advertising value. Email us at sales at kryptonradio.com for more information. Join us each week on Saturday, 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for episodes of The Event Horizon. This episode will be replayed Sunday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Stay tuned for tonight's episode of X-1. This has been a Krypton Radio production.